From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. And we welcome you to Open Line Thursday here on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Uh, Jack Williams away today. He will be back tomorrow. I'm Tom Price along with our Thursday host, our good friend, Father Brian Milady. How are you today, sir? Just peachy. <laughs> Getting a little bit of rain, but not rain like uh, our friends in California, right? No, not at all, no. Well, they are certainly in our prayers. Here's our phone number, 833 833- 288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father Brian, 833-288-3986. It is uh, Open Line Thursday. That's why we call it Open Line, because uh, we've got phone lines waiting for you. 833-288-EWTN. If you would like to uh, send us an email instead, the address for that is openline at EWTN.com. Be sure you put Thursday or Father Brian in the subject line. Again, openline at EWTN.com. Today, Father, I know that you want to talk about monasticism, right? Yes. The reason I wanted to talk about it is because the Feast of St. Scholastica is coming up. Uh huh. And uh, this is not the same quite as religious life. In religious life, people basically enter to do apostolic ministries that take them out of the monastery, you could say. But monks, basically, or the rule of St. Benedict, which, as you remember, Pope Benedict was highly uh, recommending uh, of as far as Western culture is concerned, um, came about basically with the decline of martyrdom in the West. And when people couldn't give themselves as martyrs anymore, because the Catholic religion had become fairly commonplace, then they still wanted to give more. And so St. Benedict of Nursia, of course, is the original author of the original monastic rule in the West. Asculto fili, listen to son, give ear to my words, which was basically a school of perfection. The monks lived a very strict life, regulated not only by the work of man, but also by the so-called opus dei, the work of God. And as you know, there is attributed to them that they helped Western culture to survive because they spent centuries copying all the manuscripts of the ancient world. They didn't necessarily study them. That was left in later generations. But they copied them out to preserve them. And also, their community life was meant to emphasize very much the holy outgoingness of a person who, though he goes into a monastery goes into a monastery not to escape from something, 
but because he's found something. Mm. I used to be amused when the diocesan priests would pick one of their numbers and they would say to me, oh, he can't relate to anybody. He looks awful. All he does is pout all the time. He's very hard to get along with. He belongs in a monastery. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, those are the kind of people that don't belong in a monastery. Yeah, right. <laughs> because all your weaknesses are... Um, magnified when you enclose yourself in. And remember, the walls of the monastery, whether they're priests or nuns, are not meant to um, keep out the, the world as such, but they're meant instead to be a symbol of the enclosure, which is heaven, mm-hmm. um, which is the source of all the good. You can see this in some of the delightful stories, and one of them, of course, as you know, is Saint Scholastica. Saint Scholastica was the sister of Saint Benedict, and she had her own monastery down the hill from the monks of nuns. And uh, so she met her brother, they used to meet at the gate, and they'd have holy conversations. So she was having this holy conversation and it became clear that there was this violent thunderstorm coming up. So St. Benedict didn't want to stay outside the enclosure or overnight. So he wanted to go back home. And she said, no, no, I want to talk some more. So then he said, no, uh, sister, I can't stay outside the enclosure, especially overnight. So the story is, and this is in the breviary, that she, you know, closed her eyes and prayed, and the thunderstorm came up. It was so violent that he couldn't leave. Wow! <laughs> and so she said, "Well, you wouldn't listen to me, so I went to God." <laughs> <laughs> what a wonderful story! Oh, yeah. Well, of course, the ladies always get what they want, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So um, she uh, kept him there, and they um, they spent the night in holy conversation. And then after he went back, she, uh, if I forget which one, but uh, one of them died. Uh-huh. And they realized that God had permitted this because he knew that there was going to be an imminent death of one of the two. Hmm. And he wanted to give them a last moment together. I see. But monasticism is not meant to make people old and pouty and silly and, and unable to communicate. Sometimes there are people that enter who have that uh, characteristics, but it's not what it, what it's meant for. And, you know, monks generally had such a developed way of living that when it came to running uh, an institution, the abbey was um, ideal. And they demonstrated their abilities, not only their singing abilities, <coughs> but they also demonstrated their ability in the secular sphere 
because in Western Europe, things like the privy closet, you know, the the running water in the yes. bathroom and things, yes. those are all things that were invented by the monks. Really? They also invented a, a, a manner of strip mine, you know, a crop rotation, all, all kinds of things. Wow. And, uh, and they had to take, collect rents eventually, and so they developed the ability to be landlords and that sort of thing. Mm. Probably too much so, but the, the monastic life was certainly not a life for people who were shrinking violets. Yeah, it was yeah. meant for people who threw themselves completely to our Lord, but also into living as well. Beautiful thoughts on monasticism here on Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. In a moment, we're going to get to Sue in North Dakota. Sue, hang in there for us. A quick question uh, from from, uh, William, Father. William says, I would never eternally punish my child. I don't understand how God could do that. I know that I'm not as merciful as God, but I just don't understand. Could you explain? Well, God doesn't will the punishment of anyone positively. Mm-hmm. What happens is that you're given a choice in your nature to embrace uh, what you're supposed to be or not. Uh-huh. And the primary thing we're supposed to be is in union with God. So following Satan in his first creation, who was given a choice as the highest of the angels, self or God, God accepted Satan's choice, which was, I choose myself. God says, okay, you choose yourself, that's what you get for all eternity. In other words... Uh, we um, have responsibilities mm-hmm. and duties, and all God does is accept our particular embracing of those uh-huh. as as far as we embrace them. But it doesn't positively will the punishment of anyone for eternity. Good news for that. Uh, William, thank you so much uh, for your question today. Uh, Sue in North Dakota, we're going to get you right after the break here. We'll also talk with Gene in Iowa. A couple lines open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady on EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Lines are filling up here on Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady, but there is room for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 
288-3986. We'll get to the phones in just a second. I want to tell you about a wonderful book now available from EWTN uh, Religious Catalog, and that is New Scientific Evidence for the Existence of God by Jose Carlos Gonzalez Hurtado. Now, this is the book you need to challenge atheists and agnostics to defend their ideologies logically and rationally and to fortify your own beliefs. In this book, you'll find empirical evidence for theism in a way that you can easily understand, and it explains how atheism actually twists reality to justify its view by, quote, selective skepticism. I'm sure we've all seen that. Check out this great new book, New Scientific Evidence for the Existence of God. It's available right now from EWTN Publishing. Just go to EWTNRC.com to check it out, EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Sue in North Dakota listening on the EWTN app. Hello, Sue. What's on your mind today? Hi, I was going to ask Father, can Satan read our thoughts? Okay. Uh, Yes, Satan can read your thoughts because Satan is an angel. But he can't influence your thoughts. He only can know what they are. So, in no sense is Satan able to uh, force you to act in a certain way. However, because he's an angel... He can tempt you also. Angels have charged a, a, a lot of power over creation because they have no bodies and because they're a specific kind of being. But yes, he can read our thoughts. Uh-huh. Okay, there you go, Sue. Uh, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. Open line Thursday with Father Brian Milady on EWTN Radio. Let's go now to Gene in Iowa, listening on KCDM. Hey there, Gene. What's on your mind today? Yes, I would like to ask Father uh, his viewpoint on the charismatic movement, and if he could explain what resting in the spirit actually is and what happens at that time. Okay. Well, I've been dealing with the charismatic movement for 40 years. Um, I believe that it came to be recommended in Catholicism when our devotional life, basically, um, was curtailed after Vatican II. And it's an uh, experience people have of what we would call devotion now, I don't know what resting in the spirit is. I'm not a charismatic. However, I do know that being slain in the spirit is, you can find it in the office from a work of St. Augustine on the Feast of St. Cecilia, which is the, who is the patron saint of music. Uh-huh. Because there he describes people who in Africa, because remember he lived in North Africa, while they're working become so joyful they start to sing, and eventually they start to sing in articulate syllables, as is the case even today in Africa. So that's what I understand it to be. 
I don't believe it's glossolalia, one of the seven, um, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Speaking, speaking in to. tongues, right? Right, because you can't turn gifts of the Holy Spirit on and off. And the charismatics, many of them think that they can turn speaking in the Spirit on and off, depending on where they're at Mass or something like that. But it is a spiritual experience, for sure. Mm -hmm. And it does involve a kind of wordless communication, I think is the best way to put it. Okay. Very good. And uh, Gene, thank you so much for your call today. It's Open Line Thursday yes. with Father Brian Mullady. If you have a question for Father, uh, do give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Todd is listening in Willoughby, Ohio, uh, via YouTube today. Hey, Todd, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi there. I wanted to ask the priest if... Uh B. Jarrett's uh, biography of St. Dominic is the best, or in his opinion, or is there a better one? Oh, well, there are a number of biographies of St. Dominic that are much better. For one thing, they're much longer. Vicaire comes to mind. That was in the 50s. Um, B. Jarrett wrote that as a popular work to help introduce people to St. Dominic. Mm. I don't think he thought it was definitive by any stretch of the imagination. Okay. And the one that you are recommending, though, uh, could you say that again, Father? Vicaire, V-I-C-A-I-R-E. It's a French author, French-Dominican, was translated into English. And I believe there's another one, but his name escapes me at the moment. Okay, very good. It's even more contemporary. All right. Todd, thanks so much for your call. Open line Thursday here on EWTN. Jonah sent us an email, Father. Jonah says, if God is unchanging, then how could he change and become man? Yeah, that's an interesting question. The incarnation is described as a new relation between God and creation. And the reason the term relation is used is because it does not imply change. So God doesn't change. What changes is creation. Because before creation's highest experience of union with God was um, by nature, which happens with the state of grace. But now it's by person. And there is a unique relationship between God and man in Christ, which is not found any other being anywhere, not the Blessed Virgin, not anybody. It's to be changed to God in uh, union with God in person. And since the Greek term for person is prosopon or hypostasis, we therefore say the union took place in the person of the word, not the nature's. And so it's called the hypostatic union. All other attempts, which is what you're reflecting, to make God and man relate to each other by changing nature, do involve a change. But this is not the case in the uh, incarnation. Okay. Jonah, thanks so much for your question. Not too late for you to call 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father Brian, 833 833- 
288-3986. Open line uh, Thursday with Father Brian Malady here on EWTN. Let's go to Bruce with a question here. How does one defend the integrity of the church after such tragedies like the Albigensian Crusades? Well, the Albigensian Crusades were not performed by the church. They were performed by the state. Hmm. Remember, Simon de Montfort was a French nobleman, and uh, they were very much involved in, it's true, it involved the Christian heresy, Uh but they were very much involved with trying to make France one in the wars concerning this, and not so much involved in the church, although I couldn't say that the church was absent from the struggle. The Albigensian Crusade was an attempt to maintain the purity of our doctrine in the face of a very virulent heresy. You know, the Albigensians believed in two gods, They also believed that there was a god of matter and a god of spirit. And they also um, thought matter was evil. And so, for example, they practiced abortion. And it was a terrible, terrible heresy. It was the heresy the Dominicans were founded to combat. But we didn't manage to do it by preaching. So the state took care of it. (laughs) Wow. By blood. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Appreciate that. Uh, Thank you so much for your question. Here's one from Patrick, who listens to us in Cincinnati on uh, Sacred Heart Radio, AM 740. Patrick says, what would be some other excellent readings that are not in Scripture, but considered proper readings for Catholics? I'm aware of the Proto-Evangelium of James, but I hope to find some other interesting readings. Thank you, Patrick. Any uh, suggestions there, Father? Well, I assume you mean beside the catechism and all the magisterial things. Sure, sure. Yeah, there's lots of them, actually. Um, St. Augustine's a particularly helpful one. Ignatius of Antioch is a particularly helpful one. Uh, Francis de Sales is a master, as is uh, St. Teresa of Avila. Uh, No, there are plenty of other... uh, References. If you mean in the early church, there isn't a great deal in the early church. However, the Didache is one, and uh, Pastor Hermes is another, and uh, so that, there are plenty of them. Yeah. Very good. Thanks for that. And here's one from Meredith. Do Catholics believe that Mary was part of Jesus's sacrifice on the cross, and do they believe she is a mediator? I don't know what you mean by part of. Uh, we're all part of Jesus on the cross, as mm. Mary was. Yeah. Um, as regarding the mediator, she wasn't a mediator. She was a mediatrix. Uh-huh. And so she participates in the passion in the sense that she suffers with her son. And for that reason, she can be said to be a mediator because the graces of the passion, since Jesus comes from her, so the graces must come from her also. And she's said to be through her, because again, Jesus was conceived by her, mm-hmm. and she was a part of everything in his life. 
as is seen in the wedding feast at Cana, for example. Just one one example. All right. Thank you so much for that. Uh, by the way, we're since we're tackling a lot of emails today, if you would like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. Be sure to put either Thursday in the subject line or Father Brian or Father Milady, just so that we can make sure that the right uh, question goes to the right host. That's how we do it. Openline at EWTN.com. Meanwhile, there are open lines available for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. In a moment, we'll talk with Ken driving through Iowa, Robert in Spokane, lots more on Open Line t- Thursday with Father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Still time for your call at 833-288-EWTN if you have a question for Father Brian Mullady on this Thursday afternoon. And that number again, 833-288-3986. Congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family. That would be KHFR 103.5 FM. That's in Fairfield, Iowa. They are celebrating nine years with us this week. How about that? Congratulations to Mary LaFrancis and all the great folks there at KHFR from your friends here at EWTN Radio. All right, back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Let's go to Ken driving through Iowa, listening on Iowa Catholic Radio. Ken, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, thanks for taking my call. A couple of callers ago, someone called in asking about Satan being able to read thoughts. I've always been under the impression that angels, uh, while they know our inclinations, cannot read our thoughts, and that only God had the ability to, to know the, the entirety of our thoughts. But that uh, if we explicitly want angels or demons to know our thoughts, that they, they had access to those. So I was looking for clarification. Okay. Well, as far as I know, Satan can't tempt you if he doesn't know your thoughts. And Satan tempts by suggestion. So uh, that's that's all I know. Okay. Ken, thanks so much for your call. Here's Robert, a first-time caller from Spokane, Washington, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Robert, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi there, Father. Um, I, um, I'm trying to get an understanding for when it comes to prayer and praying through another entity, another person, another being, instead of directly speaking to Christ. Like, I don't understand why um, in in the Catholic uh, part of it is that you have to speak through, you know, there's praying through, like, saint, whomever. Like, I don't understand that kind of prayer, because I thought when Jesus was, um, you know, came to the earth and went through what he did for us, and the sacrifice he made was to break down any of those barriers, and we didn't need, like, I mean, we not to say that there's not a need for priests in, you know, to help uh, lead, and, or, or, you know, fathers or pastors or whatever to lead us, but, like, for direct prayer to God. I thought that door was broke down, and we don't need to pray through anything or anyone. Okay. We don't need to pray through it, but it's a wonderful thing 
because all those people, what we do is we find a favorite person who may have been through what we've been through or has this, um, you know, they're, they're the patroness of some particular aspect of something we need. And we don't pray to them. We ask their help. Uh, can't, wouldn't you uh, want as much help as you could get? Yeah, <laughs> sure. So, um, yeah, it, it, it isn't a man, requirement or a mandate, but it's an offering of a gift. And the gift is that together with the angels and saints, I mean, in heaven, we certainly say together with the angels and saints in the apocalypse, you know, casting down the golden crowns around the glassy sea and mm. things like that. Mm, yes. Th that we um, ask the imprecation and help of the saints. Okay. And thank you, uh, Robert, for your call today. Ruth has this question. Does the Holy Spirit leave you if you enter a state of mortal sin? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of grace and the spirit of love. And when you um, lose that through mortal sin, uh, the action of the Holy Spirit deserts you also as far as, uh, you know, daily practice. Now, as soon as you repent, of course, the Holy Spirit returns to aid and support you. Beautiful. Uh, Bruce has this quick question. If God can do anything, can he sin? Uh, God can do anything good. <laughs> okay. Sin is not good. Besides, it involves God in a contradiction. Yeah. And these are contradictions made up by men normally uh -huh. because they don't want to believe in God and they want some excuse for not believing in God. Mm -hmm. uh, no, God can't sin because that would involve him in a contradiction since he's all good. Okay. Uh, still, uh, there is time for your call at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father Brian Mullady, 833-288-3986. Patrick says, I have been trying to prove the existence of God and have been having trouble connecting the immaterial nature of God to Jesus's very material existence here on earth and incarnation. Can you help me? Uh, gosh, well, that's like the whole of salvation history. Yeah. Um, look, first of all, you prove the existence of God, which is the Father. Yes. And you normally do that from nature. Christ then becomes, takes on flesh. And so that's what makes him, his person of the word, makes him also uh, one of the members of the Trinity. Remember, he's only distinguished in person, not in nature. Mm -hmm. So once we discover the existence of God in nature, then the addition of the person of the word comes after. Okay. So you need to distinguish between the person of the word and then the intellect and the will, human intellect and human will, that the word takes unto himself 
And why does he do that? He does that precisely to suffer and die for us. Patrick, thanks so much for your email. Let's go back to the phones now here on EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Mike is listening in Colorado, a first-time caller, listening on the great Catholic Radio Network. Hello, Mike. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi, thank you for taking my call. I have a question about why God would punish the descendants of Adam and Eve for something that they didn't do. Okay. Well, the mystery of original sin and its transmission as the Catechism points out, is something which is very hard to explain. All we would say is this. They're not being punished for something they didn't do because they're not being punished for a personal sin. The original sin is not a personal sin. The original sin is a sin of nature. Had Adam and Eve not sinned, we would inherit the condition of good in heaven, which we don't deserve either, uh, and grace. So we didn't do things to merit grace, and we're not doing things to merit being without grace. When Adam and Eve sinned, they lost grace, but not just for themselves. They lost for anyone who's materially connected to them. And so everyone who's born into the world from a material connection to Adam, in other words, who shares human nature Uh through physical descent, inherits not having grace. That's what the character of the original sin is. It's not a particular action. Okay. Wouldn't be murder, for instance. Mm -hmm. Now, um, everyone, let's see, I lost my train of thought for a moment. Everyone comes into the world without grace now. And that means that they, oh, I know what it was. If uh, a man should be created from the dust of the earth, in other words, not experience physical descent, and of course that would be through um, intercourse, right? Mm, yes. Not experience physical descent from Adam and Eve, then they wouldn't inherit the original sin. Mm. It's all a matter of sharing the common nature. And um, also, I will say this about original sin. I know a lot of people who deny original sin, and yet there's no doctrine in the Catholic Church that there's more evidence for. I think, that original sin. Yes. (laughs) You know, man knows he would like to be something, he has the potential to be something, but no one's like that. When Aristotle wrote his ethics, he painted this marvelous picture of human nature based on having an intellect, a will, and passions in a body. But then at the end of it, he says, but I don't know who's anybody who's like this. Hmm. Wow. Uh, Mike, thanks so much uh, for your call this afternoon. It is Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN. Let me tell you about one of our wonderful weekend shows that we bring you every Saturday afternoon at noon Eastern. 
and that is Women Made New. It's real talk from Kristalina Everett and her guests on Catholic marriage and family in the 21st century. Uh, also, Women Made New, a brand new book of Reflections of Adversity, Transformation, and Healing. That book is available now at EWTNRC.com. Again, the radio program, Women Made New, do check it out Saturday noontime Eastern on EWTN Radio. All right, back to the phones now. Here is Vince, a first-time caller in Texas, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Vince. What's on your mind today? Howdy. How are y'all doing today? Doing great. How are you, Vince? Good. I am blessed every day. Uh, I was calling to ask, John preached the baptism of repentance uh, through water, and he said that Jesus would come and baptize you. One greater than I would baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. But my question for you would be, did John's baptism remove original sin? No. <laughs> Well, that was easy. Oh, boy. John's was a baptism through repentance, like he says. In other words, it's a person, well, the immediate Eve, you could say, of the incarnation, who recognizes that he's not the way he should be and wishes he were. In other words, it was a testimony to the need for repentance that was evidently sought, but in itself it did not confer grace. It was a preparation for Christ conferring grace, okay. but it did not confer grace. Okay. Is that helpful for you, Vince? Well, yeah, but I'd like to have a follow-up. Sure, go ahead. Since that's not the case, what um, what did John's baptism do for Christ? Okay. Oh, I'm glad you asked that. There are a couple of strange theologians today who think that Christ needed to be baptized in the Jordan. He did not need to do that. Christ came to do it, first of all, to approve a rite that John had performed, secondly, to um, sanctify the waters, so that as he touched them, he gave, connected them to himself, so that when he dotted the cross, the baptism done in the Holy Spirit, which was, there is only one baptism in the Holy Spirit, and that's Christ's, would become effective. So uh, it did nothing for Christ except proclaim him publicly to the people who witnessed it. Okay. Vince, thanks so much for your call today. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady on EWTN Radio. Here now is uh, Stephen. Stephen is listening in Connecticut on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Hi, Stephen. What's on your mind today, sir? I wanted to ask Father uh, about how to recognize satanic uh, possession from an experience that I had um, and uh, wasn't sure if it was uh, true possession, or if it was something else. Okay. Well, there's lots of reflections on this, but I know in one particular book that I like very much on satanic possession, it states, how do you know the difference between a psychological problem and satanic possession? And the author recommends that you speak the exorcist speak to the person possessed in Latin. 
Oh. Because he says, Satan understands Latin, we don't. Mm-hmm. So if Satan responds, you can be pretty sure it's demonic possession. It's good fail-safe to know about. Stephen, thanks so much uh, for your call today. Here is Wayne who says, I am being received in the church this Easter. Well, fantastic, Wayne. Congratulations. Wayne says, I was raised with the teaching that Jesus said divorce is unacceptable except when adultery is committed. I think the the Catholic Church says it's never permissible. What is the reason for this? The reason is because of Christ's own words. He who uh, divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery with her. Mm, yes. Uh, it's true that some Eastern churches permit divorce. They, I think they allow you to. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. And... Um, but the uh, I, I I cannot remember the explanation. Someone like Doctor Hahn would uh, Mitch Pocket would be able to explain this very well to you. Okay. But the uh, whole the the uh, language in the New Testament that has to do with unless is a Semiticism, and it depends on the way you translate it as to whether you could get divorced or not at mm-hmm. all. Okay. And the manner in which the Catholic Church is in, uh, determined to interpret it, it means not at all. Very good. And we thank you so much, uh, Wayne, for your question today. By the way, if you'd like to send us a, an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Luke sent us an email, Father. He says, what can, a, what can one do when researching an issue but finding that two orthodox moral theologians disagree on that issue? How can one find the correct view? <laughs> well, I'd have to know what the issue was, frankly. Well, I think he's asking, you know, generally speaking, uh, if, if somebody is researching a, a particular issue. Uh, well, they used to have what they called probiliarism, probabilism and probiliarism. Wow. If two, oh gosh, and then there's equiprobabilism. Woo. All this was in, after the Council of Trent because they didn't have a lot of reflection on confessional practice and uh, you know opinions about that specific sins until after the Council of Trent. The bottom line would be the decision or the teaching which seems more in line with the traditional teaching of the church Uh is the one that's to be accepted. That's probabilism. Okay. Sounds good. And here is a question now. Uh, This is from Joan. She says, on open line not too long ago, the question was asked, why were seven books removed from the Bible? Well, the response discussed all sorts of post-Reformation issues, but never was the statement made that we, the Catholic Church, did not take out those seven books. The Protestants did. Perhaps, Father, you could state that with uh, some more clarity. Thanks from Joan. Yeah, well, the canon of Scripture was determined from the Greek Old Testament and uh, whatever in the Greek New Testament. Uh Uh-huh. And the Greek Old Testament uh, obviously didn't include seven books in the canon because they were in Greek. Mm. I'm sorry, the opposite. 
it did include them, and, and the rabbis at Jamnia, after the fall of the temple, decided that only Hebrew would be used. So um, when Luther came along, these books, some of whom had had a spurious history, like James, for instance, um, they took out because, first of all, they thought they were great scripture scholars and could make decisions about this. Mm -hmm. But secondly, because it was originally part of only the Hebrew canon, or, um, of course, James is in Greek. It's a New Testament book. But that had always been um, questioned by uh -huh. some people. So, for example, the texts that have to do with Prayers for the Dead, which you find in Maccabees, they took those out because the Maccabees are Greek books in the Old Testament. Mm. So the issue occurred and was brought to the forefront because Luther didn't like certain of the teachings, and so he omitted the books that he could get, you know, mm -hmm. um, get away with omitting. Yeah because um, they were uh, traditionally not in the Old Testament and uh, or they were questioned okay. from the New Testament. The text concerning the woman caught in adultery, you know, the, the, this woman that they were going to stone, uh -huh. this was always questioned by the Christians. Hmm. Some people put it in, some people didn't put it in. Uh, but generally, the Orthodox tradition was that it was a part of the New Testament. And as a result, they had to try to figure it out, see. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, thank you so much uh, for your question. It is Open Line Thursday with Father Brian here on EWTN. Interesting email we received from Zach, Father. Zach says, a new friend of mine who is a Baptist shared some personal struggles she was going through. She just moved here from another part of the country. She's now going to a Baptist church about eight to nine miles away. I suggested that she attend a Baptist church just a few blocks from her home, which would be much easier for her. Uh, was it wrong of me to do that? Of course, I do hope someday she sees the truth of the Catholic church. Any thoughts there, Father? Not really. Um... If she's a Baptist, she's going to go to the Baptist church anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I would, of course, pray that she would eventually convert. Sure. But it doesn't sound to me like she's interested in converting. Well, perhaps not so, now, yeah. So if all you're doing is recommending geography, <laughs> I, don't, I don't see that as having a theological meaning. Very good. Lorraine asks, part of the sacrament of anointing of the sick is where the priest asks the Lord to forgive the person's sins. Does that include any sins that perhaps I committed years ago that I might have forgotten? Well, joining the confession forgives that. Okay, <laughs> all right. Remember, sure. all your sins are forgiven when you go to confession. Um, and what? And if there's something left over, um, yeah, it would include that, except that it's already included. We mustn't get too scrupulous about these yeah, things. Yeah, no. yeah, okay. And uh, this question from Daniel, if you have cremated ashes of someone who had a Catholic funeral, can they be kept in your house until the ashes are buried, or is it better to get them buried before that? 
before they're buried? Well, <laughs> no, I think, I think, in other words, uh, do you want to bury them right away or is, or, yes. or is it okay? Uh, perhaps maybe there's a hard freeze or something like that. And it's just well, impossible to do yeah. that. That's why I see questions like this. You can't really answer them on a I show see. like this. I see. Uh, if there's a hard freeze, yes, but all things being equal. Okay. Uh, if it's possible to bury someone uh, as soon as possible with the ashes, it should be done. Even at sea, they commit the body to the deep as oh, soon yeah. as it's ready. Yes. Okay. Uh, Daniel, thanks for your email. Here's a question now from Josephina. Josephina says, if a person was baptized in the Catholic Church, but as an adult, she became an atheist and then died suddenly, can she enter the kingdom of heaven if we pray for her? Well, if she's set against entering it, uh, no. Uh, Because uh, the point is, even if she were given the opportunity to change, uh-huh. she's already had it all while she was on earth. Uh, she still remains a Christian, mm-hmm. but she remains, she's a bad Christian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you have to want baptism, uh, you know, what happens in baptism in order for it to have any fruits in you. Now, of course, little children don't want that, mm-hmm. but they can't want anything. You know, they can't will anything. Yeah. But once your will enters, then uh, you have to make a choice for our Lord as far as you're able or not. Okay. Josephina, thanks for your email. This is probably the last one for the day. This is from James. What would happen if a pope did teach heresy? (laughs) Well, I'm afraid I'm not wise enough to answer that. (laughs) Uh, All right. That's a question that has plagued the Catholic Church for 2,000 years, and I cannot answer it in one minute. Okay. Right? okay. What I will say is quite simply that if he were teaching a doctrine uh-huh. that wasn't true, uh-huh. he would be teaching as a private person, not as the Pope. Okay. Very good. And Father, would you leave us with your blessing, please? May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. Father uh, Brian Milady, thank you so much for all that you do for all of our listeners. Thank you so much. Oh, God bless you. Thank you. We do this program Monday through Friday, open line right here on EWTN. Tomorrow, Jack is back. Also, Colin is back. Colin's been under, under the weather last couple of weeks, so be sure to join us for our theologian. Uh, Mr. Colin Donovan on tomorrow's Friday open line. On behalf of everybody here, I'm Tom Price along with Father Brian Milady. Thanks for joining us. See you next time on EWTN. God bless.